Joshua chapter 5, verse number 13. If you're visiting with us today, we have been for the last few weeks, a couple of months now, just looking at some of the stories of the Old Testament, things that we learned about in Sunday school, or we should have learned about in Sunday school, and maybe haven't talked about for a while. We've talked about the creation story and the fall of man and the flood and Noah and Jacob wrestling with the angel and Moses and the burning bush. Today we're going to talk about Joshua and the walls of Jericho. The walls fell down. Joshua chapter 5 and verse number 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city. Let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, advanced and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice. Nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day, marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and 
vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for every part of it. I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful and glorious, victorious story. And I pray you'd speak to our hearts with it today. Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me, Father, for anything that might hinder. Uh, Help me, Lord, to say what I should and nothing else. And I pray, Lord, all of us would be filled with your spirit to hear. And that we would not just hear for the sake of hearing, but we would hear to be changed. And that, Lord, if there are changes needed, we would make them. And I pray, Father, if there are those here today who are uh, unsaved, who don't know you as Savior, that they'll see themselves in Jericho and they'll recognize what is to come and they'll turn from their sin and be saved this day. Help us, Lord, as we look at your word. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who doesn't like a good implosion? You know what I mean? I'm talking about those... Amazing things where they will take some old tower or structure or bridge or something like that and they will meticulously place little charges all over the thing. It's a very, very precise procedure and it's all timed and it's computer controlled and all this kind of stuff and then at just the right moment they will punch a button and you'll see these little puffs of smoke and the whole thing will just fall down upon itself. Who doesn't like that? I find those videos fascinating to watch. I could watch one of those all day long. Not too long ago, I was watching one, and they had done the same thing. They had brought in the experts. I can't remember what this, I think it was a bridge. They had brought in the experts. They had particularly placed all of their little charges. They had everything all set. The news media was there. As the crowd gathered all around it, and as the countdown timer went down to zero, you saw this, you saw the telltale little puffs of soap, and then nothing happened. And it was still standing there. Somebody, somewhere, had messed up. Somebody had not exactly followed the correct procedure because it didn't work. And I thought, who in the world would walk inside of that place now after that? I don't know what they did. Well, I submit to you that the walls that fell flat around Jericho did so precisely because Joshua and the Israelites followed the exact procedure God told them to follow. It was a ridiculous procedure, wasn't it? 
It was absurd. It was ludicrous. I'm certain that they were being laughed at by the Canaanites atop the walls of Jericho, but God had told them to do it this way, and they trusted him. They did it exactly the way he said, and the walls fell flat. God knocks down walls when we trust and obey. Well, let's start this morning with a little background information. Let's bring ourselves up to date because we've been jumping through the Old Testament and we left an awful lot of it out. The children of Israel uh, had been wondrously delivered from Egypt. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They had served there as slaves for 400 years. Moses had led them victoriously out of Egypt and across the Red Sea in that wondrous deliverance. They had come to the very border of the Promised Land. Uh, we're right on the precipice of receiving the promise that God had given uh, that they would have that land, and then they messed up. They didn't believe it. And so the Lord, in his anger, had turned them away from the Promised Land, and they had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. But now we come to the book of Joshua, and that 40 years has passed, and they have actually crossed over the Jordan. And where we take up the story now, they are prepared to uh, attack and uh, defeat the city of Jericho, conquer the city of Jericho, which is the first one that stands in their way. Verse number 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Joshua is a great general, and Joshua has apparently gone out to survey this city and to see just exactly what he's going to have to do and map out his strategy. And you have to remember, the Israelites hadn't dealt with anything like this. They didn't have uh, equipment and things to handle a huge, walled, fortified city such as Jericho. Forty years earlier, when that first survey team had gone into the Promised Land and had come back and brought a bad report that scared everybody to death, one of the things they said was that the cities of Canaan were large with walls up to the sky. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28. So Joshua was a great military commander. He was a genius in many ways. But his army was armed with slings and arrows and bows and spears. Not ideal for besiegement of a walled city. So he goes out and he's strategizing. He's looking this thing over, trying to figure out what he's going to do. And while he's strategizing and planning, somebody walked up to him. He met somebody out there uh, who gave him a plan of attack. That's in chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. This man told him that victory for the people of God was sure. He told him that this would be a tremendous judgment of God on the Canaanites. Jericho, by the way, was a city that was totally given over to sin. It was totally given over to to depravity. Other sources tell us that they practiced things like ritual and religious prostitution. They believed in infant human sacrifice. They sacrificed their babies to false gods. These were wicked people. No interest in God. I believe had they been willing to turn from their sin and turn to God, he would have accepted them, just as he did Rahab, the harlot who was rescued from that city. But apart from that, their doom was already pronounced, said this man to Joshua. So who was this guy who told Joshua these things, who gave him his marching orders? Well, as we study it, it becomes clear this is another one of those theophanies, isn't it? We've seen that several times now. Uh, in the Old Testament. A theophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Jesus Christ appearing in temporary human form to Joshua. He had appeared the same way to Abraham at Mamre. He had appeared to Jacob, remember, when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He appeared not in human form, but in the form of the flaming burning bush to Moses. And now he appeared to Joshua. 
When Joshua first saw him, verse number 13, his sword was drawn. And and Joshua immediately asked him, he said, whose side are you on? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And his answer is fascinating. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Don't you think that's an interesting answer to the question? What he said was, I'm not working for either of you. I've come to take command. He, could, he would not be serving under Joshua with Israel, but rather the other way around. We could paraphrase his response as, stand aside, Joshua. I am here to take command. You are second in command, Joshua, and work for me. We always need to remember that, don't we? I mean, that, that, we could preach the whole sermon on just that one part right there. Uh, Jesus said, if we call, without me, you can do nothing. And we need to remember that. So that's an interesting thing in this conversation. It's also interesting that his sword was drawn because it indicates he was ready to fight. Just as when David told Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. So now here we see the Lord is ready to fight. It would not be Israel defeating Jericho. It would be the Lord defeating Jericho. So Joshua heard these words. And when he heard these words, he fell down and worshipped. And the fact that this man did not rebuke him for that worship is just another piece of evidence that this was indeed the Lord. Joshua fell on his face. He said basically the same thing Saul of Tarsus said when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Lord, what would you have me to do? What do you want me to do? What are your orders? And so this man gave him the plan. I've kind of divided this up into three different sections here today. And the first is this. The plan is given and victory is promised. Verses 1 through 5. The plan is given and victory is promised. Word of Israel's defeat over Egypt had filtered out. Their miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, their defeat of their enemies, all this stuff had reached Jericho. And so the Bible says Jericho was shut up. Jericho was in a complete state of defense. Their walls were manned. Their gates were tightly shut. Nobody was going in. Nobody was coming out. And so that's why Joshua would look at it and say, I don't know how I'm going to defeat this city. But the commander of the army told Joshua, that the victory was already assured in verse number two. He said, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Notice, I have given. It's already a done deal. The victory is already won. It's already assured. It's already been given to you and the Israelites. And we could pause there for a minute, and we can make notice of the fact that the same thing is true for us in the Christian life, isn't it? Our victory is already assured. Christ has already defeated every enemy. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We are already victorious. Warren Wiersbe said, God's people don't simply fight for victory, but from victory, because the Lord has already won the battle. Well, he went on, and he said, here's how I want you to do it, Joshua. Here's... The plan, and I can imagine Joshua listening to this with just this ever-growing wonder as he's hearing what this person is saying. There was no mention of military anything. There was no mention of weaponry. There was no mention of fighting. It was uh, on the surface a plan that seemed absurd. But absurd or not, Joshua accepted the instructions from the Lord and immediately Put them into practice without hesitation. You remember when we talked about Moses in the burning bush? Moses just fought and and complained and and pushed back. Not Joshua. Joshua just accepted it without hesitation. The method was dictated by the Lord. It didn't matter that it was unorthodox. It didn't matter that it was even ridiculous to the 
fighting minds of the day. It was what God said to do. And so, it's what God promised would succeed, and he did it. And a key thing for us to understand in all of this is this is all, it all took faith. It took faith for Joshua to believe that. It took faith for Joshua and his army to utilize such a method. Many years later, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse number 30 would write, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Every part of the story is a demonstration of faith. Faith that was demonstrated by obedience, as faith always is, by the way. So the plan was simple. It involved a lot of the number seven. I don't know if you noticed that. The number seven in Scripture usually refers to completion or perfection. God's plan here was perfect as seen by the fact that there were seven priests and seven trumpets and seven days and seven circuits of the wall on the seventh day. The Israelites were to march around the city in a procession. That procession would consist of armed men, followed by a group of seven priests, each blowing a trumpet, followed by the Ark of the Covenant, and then another contingent of armed men. There was to be no speaking. No speaking. There was to be silence, according to verse number 10. I like the way the New, the new Living Translation renders that verse. Joshua 6.10, do not shout, do not even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout. Then shout. That wouldn't work in this church, would it? Wouldn't work here at all. No speaking. The only sound was to be the sound of marching feet and the sound of trumpets. They were to march silently around the city one time and then return to camp. The city of Jericho at that time, we believe, was about eight acres of, of area that was covered, so it would have taken them, oh, maybe 30 minutes, half an hour, to make that trek all the way around. Oh, and then they were to repeat the process the second day, and then the third day and the fourth, all the way up until day seven, and then when they got to day seven, they were to march seven times around the city, at which time Joshua would finally give the command, the people would shout, and the walls would fall flat, according to verse five. And the armed men would walk straight into the city and destroy it. All within. I like something one guy wrote about this. He, he said this about this plan. Why did God demand this particular approach? The method of the conquest was designed to show the people the truth of God's grace. Nothing they did would cause Jericho to fall. God would cause it to fall. And they would receive the city as God's gifts. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse number 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It was a plan based not on human ability at all, but on God's ability to do things above and beyond our wildest imaginations. He said through Isaiah the prophet, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the plan was given. Victory was promised. Verses 6 through 19, we see the plan is executed and victory is believed. The plan is executed and victory is believed. They, they did just as they were commanded. They marched silently. Not a word being spoken. Trumpets playing. And then they returned to the camp. They did it for seven days. But on the seventh day, they did it seven times just as he commanded. I want you to think about this. You have to put yourself in their mind. Think of the tremendous faith and the test of faith that this thing was. If the only thing commanded was to keep silent, it would have been nearly impossible to do. It would have been a very difficult test of faith. But each day they had to do it again. 
They had to listen to the taunts and the laughter, which no doubt was coming down from the walls uh, that were manned by the people of Jericho. They would have had to return at the end of each trek back to the camp, having seen no victory, only to be told that they had to do the exact same thing the very next day. It took faith. There's no doubt it took faith. And it took faith that is demonstrated by obedience to execute God's plan day after day, seeing no results for seven days. Nothing happened. But then it happened, just as the commander said it was. The plan was successful, and victory was experienced. Verses 20 and 21. Again, they marched silently, not a word being spoken, trumpets playing, and then they returned to the camp. They did it for seven days, but on the seventh day they did it seven times just as he commanded, and then they shouted, and then the walls fell down. They just fell down. The Bible says so simply they fell down flat in verse number 20. Carl and I were discussing this before the service. Well, all of us elders were before the service. I don't know if they collapsed outwardly or inwardly or straight down. You can read different things about that. The actual words seem to mean they fell down upon themselves. Somehow they fell down. But however they came down, the men of Israel, just every one of them, looked straight ahead and from all sides into that city and destroyed it. Now, of course, unbelievers have come up with all kinds of insane uh, explanations for why the walls came down. Let me, let me share a few of them with you. Uh, some have posited that an earthquake caused the destruction. That one would at least make sense, right? I mean, that's somewhat sensible. Some have imagined that some of the Israelite soldiers were busily undermining the walls while the others were marching. Nothing in the text would indicate that, but again, that would at least make sense. But how about this one? Amazingly... Some have suggested that vibrations set up by the trumpet blasts and soldiers' shouts caused the collapse. So it must have been one of those harmonic things, you know, the trumpet caused it. And then some have even come up with the absurd theory that shock waves caused by the marching feet, the tramping of boots, brought down these stone walls. People will come up with anything except to believe the Bible. But the fact is this was a God thing. This was a God thing. The walls fell down because God knocked the walls down. And he knocked them down because of the faith of his people. Again, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Amazingly, all of the walls fell down except one little tiny section. There was one little tiny section. If you go back and you read the story of Rahab, which occurred earlier in the history here, you find that Rahab lived on the wall. Her house was on the wall. And they had to go in and rescue her. So all the walls are down, and here's this one little section still standing, which was Rahab's house. That didn't fall and couldn't fall until she and hers were safe. This was God's victory and God's judgment on Jericho. The people of God only needed to believe and watch it unfold. So let's wrap it up with some, ex- with some applications. I just want to mention a couple. And the first two I want to mention I'm, I'm going to share from another source. Uh, one guy said this. He said, God delights to use methods that demonstrate he is in charge. Nobody, nobody could look at this battle and believe the Israelites had accomplished any of it in their own power or their own might. And and there's other examples where this is true. God likes to do things in ways that demonstrate it could only be him. I mean, think of Samson defeating a whole multitude of the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Think about David defeating Goliath with a slingshot and a pebble. Think about Gideon defeating the hordes of Midian with 300 guys who were armed 
with nothing but pitchers and torches. I mean, it's amazing when God does this sort of thing. Of course, the greatest example would be Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? Jesus Christ, who defeated death and provided salvation and eternal life on the cross. Here's what this fellow said about that. He said, the supreme example, of course, is the cross of Christ. It seems ridiculous to suggest that a Jewish rabbi dying on a Roman cross would provide eternal salvation for sinners, but that cross, so despised and scorned, is the means that God chose for saving sinners. That cross would prove to be a stumbling block to the Jews and a laughing stock to the Greeks, but to those who are saved, it is both the power and the wisdom of God. So God delights to use methods that demonstrate he's in charge. Second application, God can overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles. Let me read again. This man says how this should cheer us as we go about the business of preaching the gospel. Sinners are heavily fortified against the gospel, just as the city of Jericho was fortified against Israel. People have erected their own walls against the things of God. Can these walls fall? And the answer from Joshua 6 is a triumphant yes. But if we are to see the walls of resistance crumble in human hearts, we must follow God's instructions. We must preach the truth that God has revealed. Many pastors and churches are failing at this very point. They are substituting a worldly message and worldly methods for the message and methods that God himself has appointed. The urgent, pressing call to the church today is to believe that God knows best. If God has appointed the gospel as his way of saving sinners, we must join the Apostle Paul in saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, God can overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles when we follow his instructions. Here's the third application, maybe the main one. God knocks down walls when we demonstrate faith through obedience. Obedience all the way to the end. All the way to the end. For six days, they circled the city once. But on the seventh day, they circled the city seven times. Why prolong that? Why not knock that city flat after day one? Why make them go back on day two and day three? Why prolong it? Was God giving the citizens of Jericho a chance to repent? Was he being long-suffering? Because after all, Rahab was saved and all of hers. Was he saying, uh, give them some time? Maybe some others. I suppose it's possible. But I think more likely it was a reminder that the Jews needed not only to obey, but to obey completely. God had said seven times. When nothing happened after the first go-around, it would have been a test of their faith. They needed to keep obeying until the very end. Seven times. Until that seventh day, and the seventh trip around, and the trumpet blast, and the shout. Only then would they have demonstrated their faith in God through their complete obedience. One of my favorite commentators uh, says this, and he, he uses Naaman the Syrian as an example of this. You may remember the story of Naaman the Syrian who was a leper. And he came to Elisha to be cleansed of his leprosy. It's in Second Kings chapter 5. Let me read what he says. He says, the situation reminds me of what must have happened after the Syrian general Naaman had been told by Elisha that he would be cured of his leprosy if he bathed in the Jordan River seven times. We know he did not like the idea because he protested about the inferiority of the Jordan River to the rivers of his own country. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. 
Are not the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Naaman asked. It must have been a great trial to this proud general to wash in Jordan's muddy waters seven times. And I can imagine him objecting to his servant who, in this story, had more spiritual sense than Naaman had. After he had bathed once, Naaman would have protested, Look, I bathed in the river, but I am just as I was before. Nothing happened. The prophet said you had to bathe seven times. The servant would have answered. After the second immersion, the protest would have been the same. There was not even the slightest hint that this method was working. Not a single spot had cleared up. The only difference was the general was now wet and muddy. So on after the third washing and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. Nothing is happening, the angry Naaman would have declared. You've only dipped yourself in the water six times, the servant would have said. The prophet said seven. It was only after that seventh washing, after total obedience to the very end, that his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy in 2 Kings 5.14. We need to learn the lesson of the Jewish armies, the lesson that they learned before Jericho. And Naaman the Syrian learned in the muddy Jordan River, not only is there no substitute for obedience to God, there is no substitute for obedience in all particulars to the very end. And when God does not act as quickly as we think he should, we are not justified in pulling back, substituting some other method or some alternative procedures. I think this is the main application from this passage. God knocks down walls when we trust him. When our trust is demonstrated by obedience, obedience to the very end. Whatever fortified enemies you might face, whatever fortified strongholds you might face, God can make them fall flat and give you the victory. But you must trust and obey to the very end. One last, one last application. And this one is more somber. This is for those who might be here this morning who are uh, not a believer. If that's you. You're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And just to be clear, let me say that if you don't understand what I mean by that, then you haven't done it. If you don't understand what I mean when I say, are you saved? If you don't truly understand the meaning of those words from a biblical perspective, then you're not. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't say, Mom and Dad took me to church every day and therefore I must be okay. It doesn't happen that way. The Bible is clear the only way to be right with God is to actively and knowingly turn to him in faith. It's not something you wonder about. You've either done it or not, and if you've done it, you know you've done it. And so I ask you this morning, if you're not a believer, think about this, because here's the application for you. If you don't turn to Christ in faith, what happened to Jericho will happen to you. That's not my words. That's the words of the Bible. The judgment of Jericho was the judgment of a righteous God on an unbelieving people. You may think that you are secure. You may think that you are just fine. (laughs) But the strongest defenses you have will crumble like dust when the judgment from the sovereign God of the universe falls upon you. You may have listened to sermon after sermon in this place or some other place. Just as the inhabitants of Jericho watched time after time as the Armies of Israel watched or marched around them in a silent sermon. You, you may have even been trembling in conviction during invitation after such a sermon. 
just as Rahab said the inhabitants of Jericho were trembling in fear with what they knew God was doing with the children of Israel. But if you remain walled up and you refuse to turn to Christ, the Bible is clear. Nothing is clearer. You will die lost. You will go to hell. You will spend all of eternity there with no hope. Listen to me. You are here this morning. You are still breathing. There is still time. If you will but turn to Christ today, now, before the walls fall, there is hope. Well, Father, we thank you for the story of the walls of Jericho, and I pray that it's helpful to these, your people. Lord, those of us who know you as, as our Lord and Savior, I pray that we're encouraged by these things. What a glorious truth that uh, we serve a, a commander that uh, has already promised victory, has already given victory. How we thank you for that. How we thank you, Lord, that there is nothing too hard for our God, that even things that look like insurmountable obstacles, he can handle with just a word. How we thank you. How we thank you, Lord, for the reminder that God knocks down walls if we will but trust and obey, and obey to the end. And so I pray, Lord, if there are those of us who are wavering, if there are those amongst our number here today who who know you and love you and want to serve you but uh, are, are disappointed that they don't seem to be seeing the results that they expect, oh, Father, I pray you'd strengthen their heart, strengthen their soul. Help them, Lord, to go on another day, to march around that city one more time, to keep on trusting and not giving up, doing it the way you've said to do it until finally the day comes when they see the results of that victory. Help us with that, Father, I pray. Some might need to be encouraged about that. And, Lord, if there are, if there are unbelievers here, if there are people here today who have never yet trusted Christ, oh, Father, I pray. I pray that they would think about what awaits Think about the futility of thinking they have any hope when the sovereign God of the universe stands outside the walls of their life. Lord, I pray they turn to you now before it's too late, before that seventh day, before that trumpet sounds. Help, Lord, I pray, if there are those who need to be saved, may they be saved today. As we sing, if there are decisions to be made, I pray if people need to come and pray here at the front of this church as as we always have an invitation, I pray they'd do that. If there are those who need to have someone pray with them about salvation or any of these other things, may they know there are those who will do it. And that just help us, Father, to respond as you would have us to. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake.